Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Thousands of people across Victoria and South Australia have been going through a deeply sombre, reflective time over these past couple of weeks. They've been remembering the 1983 Ash Wednesday bushfires in those two states that claimed 75 lives and injured more than 2,600 people. So many trials, so much turmoil, embodied in so many ways by my next guest, whose life was profoundly changed forever. Anne Fogarty was one of those thousands injured. It's remarkable that she survived, with third-degree burns to 85% of her body. Doctors, nurses, family and friends did not think she'd survive. In fact, she was hailed a hero, being one of only a few people to survive that level of trauma. Thirty years on, the scars still remain, but she's opened up about her remarkable fight for life in a book finally written called Forged with Flames. Suffering loss, faith and despair. Anne says her story doesn't have a fairy tale ending, but it does have hope. And I have no doubt that her strength will give us hope. I'm privileged to say that Anne Fogarty has agreed to join us on Open House. Anne, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm so pleased that you've agreed to join us. Thank you so much, Anne. Oh, you're very welcome. Your story is a simply stunning one at so many levels. It is not just this simple as being a bushfire victim who recovers and regains a normal life, is it? No, not at all. There, there's definitely a legacy for me from these bushfires. As I, I think there are for lots of people. Can you put into words what that legacy is and the extent of it? Well, it keeps revealing itself um, year after year. At first, it was just a physical recovery. Um, and once I'd recovered physically, I thought that was it. I thought I would go on to live a normal life. Um, it was a recovery of my faith, um, which I didn't lose, but I had to re-establish in a different way. It has affected me emotionally and mentally. Um, I've suffered from post-traumatic stress, um, which continues. I, I can sometimes be totally paralysed by anxiety. Um, I'm left, I am left with physical difficulties. I can't keep my body temperature stable. Um, so there is this lifelong legacy, which um, I'm glad I didn't know in the beginning. Yes. Can I ask you this, how you regard your physical scars today, 30 years on after Ash Wednesday? Well, they seem terrible in the beginning. Um, they don't seem so terrible now because I realised about 20 years after the, my original injury that this body of mine is just amazing. It just keeps going through thick and thin. It's carried me through all those injuries and much more. So I've developed a real respect and admiration for my body and, and that's made me look at my scars differently. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying I don't mind them. Of course I do and I would love my old body back, particularly my face. But I do look at my body quite differently now and um, that's been marvellous. Even just that is a remarkable lesson for so many people in so many ways. Can I take you back... Before the bushfires, Anne, in your book you say that everything felt so perfect in your life and that was just two months before 
those terrible fires. Yes, we had a wonderful Christmas with family and close friend and we were just all together. I had two little daughters, six and four. We were just so happy. Um, I don't know that I've ever been in a happier place. Um, it's good none of us knew what was looming ahead, I think. Yes. Can I take you to that day then when the fires hit your town, perhaps before it in the lead up to it? Did you have any inkling about how severe they'd be? I didn't. I, I realise now I'd grown up in England where you just never heard of a bushfire. Um, when I came over here, I, I was a little aware of it, but I realised I was very naive and had no idea there could be fires of the intensity that Ash Wednesday was. Um, so I, I didn't know. I, I just knew in the morning it was extraordinarily hot. Um, that's what I remember as I said goodbye to my husband and took my girls to school and kinder. Um, that was the thing that I thought, this feels much hotter than it ought to be at this time of day. So paint us a picture of your town before the fires and what happened that day. Well, I, I lived then in a little... Um, community it was just a very small community called Upper Beaconsfield um, in Victoria and it was your typical lovely bush town it was full of beautiful trees and birds and wildlife I remember when we first moved there there were wallabies that used to come to the bottom of the garden and coming from England for me that was just enchanting and there was just just a few shops a little post office we had to walk up to get our mail and when we first lived there there was no water on we had tank water and a real sense of community you felt like you knew most people and most people knew you so it it felt like a wonderful place to bring up two little girls on that day I just did what I normally did picked up the girls from school and it wasn't till about quarter to five when I was looking out of the kitchen window which overlooked all the bush beyond I saw a plume of smoke coming up behind the trees and I just had a pang of fear then I, I, I just thought this isn't right that looks awfully close there was no power at this stage and no telephones and my husband hadn't come home so there was no way of really finding out what was going on, so I just carried on and put the girls, gave them tea and put them to bed. And it would have been about half past eight, quarter to nine then, and this emergency vehicle came up the road and someone was yelling out, get out now, the wind's about to change. So because my husband wasn't home, my neighbours said, come with us. So I, I dashed inside and got my two girls and our two dogs that was all I took and we went and we got into the neighbor's car um, but before we could set off we realized that one of their children was missing he wasn't there in the car with us so we all jumped out and by the time we realized we couldn't find him it was too late to escape the trees were on fire at the top and the wind was howling with an intensity I've, I've never experienced. So we knew we had to shelter and my neighbours had an above ground pool. So we just rushed down there and jumped in and wet all the children. And then my neighbour Carol went up to the house and got two blankets which we wet and, 
um, we decided because already branches um, that were on fire were falling into the pool, we thought we'll shelter by the side. There was no vegetation and there were just rocks at one side, so we thought this is a really safe place to be. Um, but I didn't realise and I'd never heard of them then, but they were fireballs flying ahead of the main fire front and amazingly unluckily one of them found this little narrow passage between the rocks and the pool and because I was on the outside it, it hit me and, and that's when my injuries happened. Can I ask you to describe two things for us? The sound of that moment and the fear that you felt as you were in the pool as that was heading for you. Well, the sound was like something I have never heard. I, I try and describe it. A thousand express trains comes a little bit close to it. It was just the roar. Um, I've never heard anything before or since like it. Um, you knew something ominous was happening. It was so extraordinarily loud. And the fear I was feeling, I have to be honest, I've always struggled with fear and I've always been afraid of many things, but I have never been as afraid as I was in that moment. Um, it just eclipsed all my other fears and I was very familiar with fear. And the pain, Anne? Well, the pain also was indescribable. I remember just screaming and screaming out oh god please let me die that that was the only way i felt i could escape this ex terrible excruciating pain so what happened then after the fireball swept through um my neighbor alan who'd been up near the house um protecting the house heard me scream and he came down and wonderful Alan lifted me up and put me in the pool, burning his arms and hands in the process. So he definitely saved my life at that point. Um, I didn't know where the girls were. Um, there was just my neighbour Carol and her daughter Janet in the pool. And I didn't realise till a long time afterwards that Janet was looking after me and every time flames came near, she'd push me under the water to keep me safe. So, remarkable thing for a little girl to do. She was about 11, 12 then. So, under the circumstances, I find that remarkable. And I was in the pool. It felt like hours, but I've been told it was 15 minutes. And at the end of the 15 minutes, I just knew my legs couldn't hold me up anymore. And I had a, a fresh pang of fear because I thought I'm going to have to sit down and I'll drown. I, I can't keep my head above the water then. And just at this point at the side of the pool came a fireman. It was as if at every point there was someone just when I was on the brink of death. There was someone there to rescue me and he lifted me out and took me to the fire truck where my girls were and... Um, then took me to the crossroads um, at the end of the street and someone popped me in the back of a police car and took me down to the refuge centre. And then to the hospital where yeah. your life is hanging by a thread. And the nurses and the doctors are quite pessimistic about your state. They are. I didn't realise till about um, less than a week ago I was told that they'd never had anyone survive with more than 35 degree burns. So that put a lot of things, made a, 
a lot of sense out of things for me because I just knew I wasn't expected to live and, and why would I have been? Um, I just really wasn't. Did you feel like giving up? I'm sure I did. I don't remember feeling like giving up because I was terrified of dying. It was so interesting. The fear actually kept me alive. Um, all my life I've lived with fear and now it was actually keeping me alive. Um, but uh, the doctors told me later that they'd come in to see me and I had an arterial line in which I'd heard the nurses say that if it comes out, you bleed to death in, in a matter of um, seconds, really. And I was trying to pull this line out and saying, please let me die. Uh, thank goodness I don't remember that. Um, I just remember trying to live, trying to stay alive. And there were also a few glimmers of hope during your hospital stay, a long hospital stay, understandably. There were. There was um, the most amazing, magical thing happened. I loved I loved to play the flute, and my hero was James Galway, the great flautist. And he was out here in Australia at the end of May, and we did have tickets to go and hear him, but there was no way I, I couldn't even get out of bed or do anything. And one day he walked into my room with his golden flute and his tin whistles, and he just played for me for an hour. And that was just... What that did to me was remind me how amazing life can be in the middle of a nightmare. Yes. This wonderful thing can happen. So that was something I will never, ever forget, and it encouraged me beyond words. I feel emotional, you telling me that story. I can hardly imagine what it was like in the time. Oh, it's still, I still get a glow of warmth every time yes. I think of it. It was so... It was just so helpful to me and so amazing. That wasn't all, though. There was a letter from Cliff Richard. There was, <laughs> um, yes, my other hero. Um, so that was great, too. he written lots of love and get well soon and kisses. So that was just, like, <laughs> remarkable. There were clearly lots of people in your corner and behind you in this. There were. I, I didn't realise this till afterwards, but... Um, I belonged to our local church and was very close to a lot of people there and they'd organised a prayer chain all around the world. Um, people were praying for me night and day and even amongst my friends, I, I remember one of my friends saying, we just prayed for you for 24 hours and I had the 2 till 4 o'clock one in the morning <laughs> and I just thought, Wow, how wonderful that people were getting up at that time and praying for me. So um, just inexpressibly wonderful. On Open House, we're with Anne Fogarty. So how do you work through something like this before God with a faith rocked to its very core? And can you tell us how long your recovery in the immediate term was? Because I'm sure the recovery has just gone on and on. But how long were you on the critical list before you started to emerge into somewhat of a normal life? Well, I was almost three months in intensive care, so um, I could have died, I guess, at any time. Um, so that was the most critical period. And then I went back to the burns unit for a further two and a bit months. 
And then I, for the rest of the year, I went to a rehab hospital um, where I was an inpatient and came home the day before Christmas, which was wonderful, and then went back um, as a day patient um, for the next six months. It wasn't until six months after the fire that you were able to hold your daughter again. My two daughters were only six and four, and my eldest daughter, Sarah, said that doesn't look like my mum, but she did come into the room to see me, and she says now the only thing she recognised about me was my eyes, but once she'd seen my eyes, she knew it was me. But my youngest daughter, Rachel, who was only four, just said that's not my mum and wouldn't come in. And um, so even when I went back to the burns unit, she didn't want to. And one day Terry just picked her up and brought her in, kicking and screaming. And uh, she just wouldn't come anywhere near me. She'd agree to be in the room because I had um, a drawer full of lollies, which I was supposed to eat because I'd lost a terrible amount of weight. And it was sheer bribery to get her in. Um, but she d- she did not want me to touch her. She was very clear about that and, um, yes, very unsure. It may seem such a silly question to ask, but can I ask you what that did to you to work through that? It made me feel like I'd lost the girls. I I just went through a period of thinking they must have died because I haven't seen them and... Um, I, I realised I hadn't seen my face at that stage and I, I couldn't imagine how I must look that my own daughters didn't recognise me. So that was very distressing and I just felt a great sadness that um, I seemed to have lost them because I had such a closeness to them and, and it was very heartbreaking even though I tried to be sensible about it. Can I ask you to take us to that moment where you first saw your face again? How long after the fire was that and what was that like? Um, That would have been about five months after the fires. I'd gone back to the burns unit and I knew unless something extraordinary happened I wouldn't die. And one day, one evening I was just lying in bed and I just knew I had to see what I looked like. So I asked the nurse on duty if she'd bring me a mirror And she was very reluctant, and that made me a little bit suspicious. Anyway, she eventually brought one, and I just remember looking in the mirror and not seeing myself. And and in that moment, I just understood why the girls hadn't recognised me, because I still felt like me, but it certainly wasn't me looking back. And I just kept saying to the nurse, I did cry, and I just kept saying, but I'm so ugly. That was the thing that just really hit me, the ugliness of my face now. How long did it take for you to work through that? It took me 20 years, really, to work through that. I have to be honest, um, for 20 years I wished for a different face. Um, I had a lot of reaction from other people and... One day someone said to me, it was just a young boy, um, and I know children are just honest and upfront, but he just looked at me and said, yuck. And that's how I felt about myself, and it, it seemed to me a confirmation of how other people were seeing me. But then 20 years on, I suddenly had this amazing realisation that um, my body was extraordinary. It had just carried me through thick and thin my heart kept beating it 
I could walk anywhere I wanted to go within reason and I I just in that moment did a 360 degree turn and I just had such respect and love for my body that it altered my whole feeling about my scars and about myself. Where did that change of framework come from, Anne? It came because I had breast cancer and um, I had to have a mastectomy, which was... I was just so angry about that. I I felt that I'd had more than my share and and lots of other people's shares and I realised I'd falsely thought I won't have anything else. I'll just slip quietly into old age and, and die in my bed and then suddenly I had this diagnosis and um because they couldn't do radiation treatment, which was like putting a burn on a burn, I needed to have a mastectomy. And um, apart from messing up my body some more, um, I couldn't afford to lose the sweating skin. I've got very little sweat glands, so it's very hard now for my body to keep cool. And this was a good bit of sweating skin, and and I was very angry. Um, But as I worked through that process... Um, and it was when I was at my GP's when I'd had the mastectomy and, and found actually that wasn't really that bad after all. <laughs> um, he was taking my blood pressure and he said, it's normal. And I suddenly had this moment of, wow, this body. Um, it was just an amazing moment. You mentioned a number of times in your book and how naive you were. Can you explain what you mean by that? I was I was firstly very naive about fires. I um, realised I didn't realise about fires. And I was just a country girl from England. I was naive in every possible way. Um, and just very trusting, just um, believed the best of people. And um, I remember one day my daughter saying to me... Um, red cars go faster than any other colour, Mum. And I said, really? (laughs) That's what I was like. Although also naive, thinking that life would eventually just go back to normal. Absolutely. I was totally naive in that. And and in a way, I'm glad I was, because had I known the legacy that the fires would leave and the terrible journey ahead, I think I might have given up. So... And the same as the fear keeping me alive, I think the naivety kept me alive as well. I said before I was going to ask you about how you worked through this before God. What happened there? Well, I was so sure on the night of the fires as we sheltered. I remember saying to the others, don't worry, God will keep us safe. I had no doubt in my mind that if I in my terrified state, could keep my own children safe, that God would have no problem keeping his child safe. Um, And then to find that I was the one with the deep belief, with the terrible injuries, and no one else had injuries, apart from Alan, who'd courageously put me in the pool, I just felt abandoned. I felt my whole idea of God had come crashing down. I... I felt let down, disappointed. Um, Yes, it took me a long time before God to work that out. At the same time, there was this extraordinary 
knowing that even though I didn't feel God loved me anymore, I didn't have any sense of God loving me, and I did feel abandoned, I couldn't deny his presence. It was everywhere in in Alan, who'd saved my life, in Tony the fireman, who'd appeared at the right time, in the nurses and doctors, and um, I did have an angel sitting in my room the whole time in intensive care. I saw her. I knew it wasn't an hallucination. Um, So on the one hand, my whole belief and trust in God had been shattered. And in another way, his presence was so real that I couldn't really let go. It was undeniable. Um, So what were the... We hope you enjoyed this open house podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.